got a, a phone call this morning, um, and, and it was interesting. I, uh, it was a, an interview with the Washington Post at 6.30 this morning. I don't do anything well at 6.30 in the morning. Um, and I Thank God I'd had some coffee, um, so I was, I was awake. Uh, and they were doing a, a, an article um, on immigration, interestingly enough, and they wanted a pastor's perspective because there's many pastors chiming in in relation to immigration. And they had heard that I had a position different than some of the other pastors in the nation. One in particular that um, I, I've been going back and forth with um, in, in regards to immigration is, um, oh gosh, he's, uh, he's with the Baptists. Um, it'll come to me. I've been up early. Tired. But I, I, Russell Moore, excuse me, Russell Moore. And they quote out of Leviticus 19.34. And then I was watching MSNBC and it was fascinating to me. There, there was a newscaster with his Bible open reading passages of scripture. I was blown away by this. I'm thinking, we've arrived that the word of God is dictating policy in America. I'm, I'm excited because I'm hoping they're going to get to abortion and marriage. No, that's not going to happen. Uh, I was listening to the verses that they were doing, and, and you know everyone wants to be a theologian, and I'm going to take a look at one verse in particular that pertains to what we're going to be studying this morning out of Isaiah 30. We're taking a look at the book of Isaiah and going through it, and I'm going to take a look at one portion of it in relation to this interview that I had with this, this woman, very nice lady. Washington Post is not a magazine or a newspaper that I'm particularly fond of, but I have to say her interview was very fair. We'll see what she writes. Um, and I understand her to be fair from people I've spoken with. Um, and, and it wasn't what I expected it to be. And I, I want to also add, uh, Thursday or Friday, I think it was Friday, pastor Tony comes up to me with a form that was filled out, uh, intake with our receptionist of somebody requesting, um, me to officiate a memorial service for someone who had passed. His name was Ian Campbell. I didn't know Ian. Um, and the person that was requesting it, uh, was a member of our congregation, but I couldn't put a face to the name. And so it was, it wasn't clear to me. And, and then, uh, they were writing on behalf of Ian's, um, uh, uh, life mate for 14 years. Her name's Cassie and saying, we would like you to come and to officiate the memorial service. And it's in Simi Valley. It's on Saturday at six o'clock. And I'm thinking, I finally have a Saturday off. That's the last thing I want to do. And the only thing that would hinder me from doing this wasn't my schedule, it was my willingness. And I'm thinking, well, Tony could do it. Brett could do it. John could do it. I think a lot of people, we could just call, they could go do it. And I could take my Saturday off. And as I'm talking to Tony, the Lord's saying, no, you're going to do it. And, and I'm thinking, you know, that's not really fair. <laughs> and and I, was, you know, I was lamenting. And I said, well, okay, call him up, get some information, put it on my schedule, I'll do it. And I, even leaving the, the church going home, I'm thinking... Lord, come on, I'm going to call Tony. I, I, this is Saturday. You know, I, and, and the Lord kept saying, no, you're going to do it. And it, it's not an audible voice. It's just a very clear impression that this is what you need to do. And then as the time was approaching Saturday, Michelle can testify to this. You know, I'm, I'm like burdened because I'm walking into a private home in Simi Valley, which isn't even where I live. I'm coming into a private home with nobody I even know, and I can't put a face to the name of the person who attends here. And I'm going to be speaking on behalf of someone's life that I've never met with a group of people I don't know. And if that doesn't like make you anxious, something's wrong with you. And, 
And I was anxious. And, and driving there, you know, I'm like, oh, whoa. And I'm praying, and the Lord's giving me, you know, word. And, and I'm not even sure what to do. And I'm, I'm really anxious about it, but I know it's him. I parked the car. I'm walking up. I'm, I was supposed to be there early. I'm about eight minutes early. I was supposed to be 15 minutes early. I'm already anxious by that. I'm walking up. There's a, a young lady, real pretty gal, and she's wearing a, a black dress, but she has tattoos down, uh, down her arms. Cool gun tattoo right here in her hand. And, uh, um, and, and I'm walking up, and there's a group of people, and I'm not even sure who to talk to. And she turns to me, she says, hello. I said, hi. And she says, um, who, uh, what, what's your name? I said, well, I'm, I'm Rob McCoy. I'll be officiating the service today. She said, oh, I'm Jennifer. I'm Ian's daughter the man who passed. Let me go introduce you to Cassie. The, uh, they, he and Ian had been together for four, she and Ian had been together for 14 years. And I'll introduce you to Deborah. And she walks me through and introduced me to her brother, Christian. And I meet everybody. And she starts giving me the background. And he was a jeweler and he refurbished cars. And he was an amazing guy and on and on and on. And I meet Cassie and she's this just delightful lady. I mean, just precious as can be so endearing and warm. She says, I want it to be about love and hope. I said, I'm good because that's the word the Lord gave me. And, and, I'm, and I see Deborah, and I, I see the face, and all of a sudden it clicks, and, and I'm feeling more comfortable, and, and we share. I go first, and then um, uh, uh, Christian, his son, goes, and then Jennifer spoke, and then Cassie closed it up, and we had a chance to get to know each other. And I met a guy named Mark who had gone through multiple surgeries, filled with joy, and I came to find out uh, from Deborah and also Cassie herself, Cassie had had brain surgery. And I'm thinking, this is a remarkable woman, because I couldn't tell she'd had brain surgery. She's just you know, there's, there's no evidence that she's had brain surgery and she's just delightful and sharp as can be and so warm. And everyone was around her and just adored her. And she had this absolute gift of hospitality. Well, Deborah shares with me that not only had she had brain surgery, but she'd had brain surgery because her ex-husband who was in prison had sent people to put a hit on her and kill her and left her for dead. And she had to learn how to walk again. And she and Ian had met dancing at the cowboy palace And I was so moved by this family. And I left there thinking to myself, Lord, out of my fear and out of my anxiety, I would have never have stepped foot in there. I would have pawned it off to somebody else out of my selfishness. But Lord, in obedience to you, I'm walking away a richer human being for having had the privilege to meet such a lovely group of people. And it was a remarkable day, a remarkable day. And I share that with you because you have no idea what God wants to do in and through your life. And you may come to a place where you think, I have all the answers, or you, you, you decide you're going to do things on your own, and, and the Lord works through it. I share that with you because as we're going to take a look at Isaiah 30, it's going to be an interesting topic, uh, one that is going to really challenge us in a great capacity, but it's also going to bless us today. And, and I want to share with you one more thing before we get into the study, and that was the interview this morning with this woman named Michelle at the Washington Post. She starts to ask me a bunch of questions in regards to immigration. And first of all, I didn't want to take the call. Because if you know Russell Moore, he's written a number of books. He's, he's renowned through, he just finished the Baptist Convention. He, he's written books, articles. He's in the newspapers. And, and I'm going to be contending with his writings, basically. And I'm thinking, Russell Moore's in the book of who's who. And I'm in the book of who's he. <laughs> right? And, and they're, they're, to find an opposing opinion, they have really got to dig to the bottom of the barrel <laughs> to call me. No, I'm serious, because nobody knows me. 
And so they reach in the bottom of the barrel and she calls me and she starts asking me questions. And I'd done a little bit of research before she called. And I, I, I wanted to be prepared to give a response. And, and it wasn't something I wanted to do. It wasn't something I was looking forward to doing. I would rather avoid it. And what's fascinating is I think the body of Christ is a lot like that. And, and I, I read this article that was given to me this week by one of the pastors on staff written by a megachurch pastor here in California. And, and he, had, he had said this about the megachurch movement in California. He said, for over 25 years, I've lived and pastored in California. In the last 50 years, this state has experienced as much megachurch success as anywhere on the earth. We've given birth to the Crystal Cathedral, Calvary Chapel, the Vineyard, TBN, Saddleback Church, and many other megachurches and ministries. We haven't just grown a lot of megachurches. We've started the megachurch movement. We have one here in our own town. So if there's anywhere on earth where the overall moral and spiritual climate should be higher now than it was 50 years ago, it should be California, where we have so many successful stories of church growth. I mean, Calvary Chapel, 10,000% growth, 1,800 of them around the world started here 51 years ago. But has California become a more church-going place in the last 50 years, a more Christian place, a more moral place, a more godly place? You don't need to live here to know the answers to those questions. They are no, 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 and you aren't seriously asking me that question, are you? It's obvious that the culture of our state has been more impacted by Disneyland than by all of our churches combined. And this is a pastor of one of the largest churches in California. And I asked myself, how did we get to a place where we have the highest debt of any state in the union? You combine the next four largest states and their debt doesn't equal the debt of California. Highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax, right? We lead the nation in abortion. We're the authors of no-fault divorce, transgender bathroom bills. How did we get here? Is it the church? Because the growth of the church has been conversion growth, not transfer growth. All of us have accepted the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We believe in our heart, confess with our tongue, Jesus, Lord, we've, we're there. But now we're at this place where you ask a pastor to give a biblical response to Leviticus 19.34 and they don't know what to say. And the church is paralyzed. And you're going to see in a moment that the entire Jewish world was paralyzed by a small group of people and, and were about to be annihilated. And I, I wanted to share this with you because the church doesn't know how to respond or how to move culture. The American moralist and social critic Russell Kirk, he lived from uh, 1918 to 1994. He wrote these words. He said, during the past three decades, the influence has grown of those Americans who would prefer to stride along without any divinely ordained mission, who believe indeed that the American Republic could do famously without bothering about God. We, we want to do the church thing and segment it, but we don't want to be in the public square and we certainly don't want to contend for culture. We want to separate our faith from our action. Humanism and, or humana, humanitarians uh, that is the folks who take, uh, take it for granted that human nature and society may be perfected through means purely human. The idea is we don't need God. Man is innately good and we're going to achieve perfection on our own ability. And if that's the case, we should have done it a long time ago. And they're thinking if we can just remove God, throw off moral constraints, we can achieve this nirvana. And we've seen failed government after failed government in the history of the world but this mindset has come to dominate our universities, our schools, our press, our newspapers, television, radio, internet. Secularism's goal is to lay down the law for this millennium by dominating the spiritual, intellectual, educational, economic, and vocational spheres of the American culture. Um, <clears throat> Plato said there's two essential questions that come to mind. 
Plato said, who teaches the children and what do we teach them? Who teaches the children and what do we teach them? Were we created from God? As our founder said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator. God is referred to four times in the Declaration of Independence. We've arrived at this predominantly by distrust of God that lies behind fleshly and worldly devices now so commonly employed in the churches. God's work is to be done in his appointed way, but instead of that, much of what it now pretends to be his work is being done in the world's way. Prayer and tears are the weapons of heaven. The book of Acts that we just referred to declares that the same tools are available that were available to the apostles are available to us today. As the scripture says, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Proverbs 11:9, written by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said, The just shall be delivered through knowledge. And the Hebrew scholar Fox wrote, The proverb does not say that God intervenes to deliver the righteous miraculously, but that they are protected by knowledge, da'at, in the Hebrew, which is to say their wisdom. The proverb assumes that the wise, being wise, have the mental resources to get themselves out of trouble. And then finally he wrote, Nowhere in the epistles is there a single exhortation for the saints as such to engage in public evangelism, nor even to do personal work and seek to be soul winners. Rather, they are required to witness for Christ by their daily conduct in business, in the home, in politics. They are to show forth God's praises rather than tell them forth. They are to let their light so shine before men that they glorify their Father in heaven. The testimony of the life is far more effectual than the glib utterances of the lips Actions speak louder than words. And then finally, Christians must be directed by their pastors to bring their faith and values to the public square. We need to get out of the church building into the public square, demonstrating our Christianity as we go about daily, our daily lives, including and utilizing the gifts of the spirit, praying for and loving on people and generally bringing our Christian faith outside the church building. I share that because as this woman called me and wanted to interview me in relation to immigration, I had just been in Northridge in a primarily Latino and Hispanic church where I had to be interpreted into Spanish from my English because my Spanish is awful. I'd get in trouble. And the the room was filled with illegal immigrants. Uh, It was filled with a number of folks that were here from Venezuela, El Salvador, Honduras, Um, We can go on and on down the line. The pastor of the church immigrated from Mexico, became a citizen. He came here to be a missionary in the United States, and he now oversees a church of 3,000, the largest Hispanic radio program, Spanish radio program in the country. His name is Nets Gomez. And as we were interviewing and we were up on that stage and I was speaking, I was talking to them. I say, look, entering into this country uh, illegally doesn't make you a citizen any more than entering into my home illegally makes you a member of my household. And thinking that I would get an ill response from the community of of believers, they began to cheer. These are illegal immigrants. They're cheering. They're clapping. And I said, we have been given a constitutional republic with a a compact and a mandate that you're leaving despotic nations of rulers that have destroyed your countries. One in particular was Venezuela, and his fiance is still there, and a young man. And I said, you want to come to a place of refuge, and I welcome you here. But I welcome you to join the compact that makes this nation great that we want you to come here and not bring with you that which you've left. And they all cheered again. And you think that this is a Republican or Democrat issue. This, this, is, this is across the board. Because Republicans are hi- hi- hypocritical in relation to immigration. So are Democrats. 
And, and I wanted to make that point clear as this person was interviewing me. And so I said, the verse that Russell Moore quotes often is out of Leviticus 19.34. And listen to the word of the Lord. But the stranger that dwells with you shall be unto you as one born among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19.34. Initial reading of that, you think to yourself, you know what? We should let everyone in. There shouldn't be borders. We should be globalists, one world government. But that's not the context. And any theologian can look at this and just simply look at the language itself and realize that anyone who says that verse says what they're trying to make it say couldn't get themselves out of a wet paper bag theologically to defend it. Now, I have to say, I don't believe that the term illegal is dehumanizing. I recognize the inherent worth of every human being and affirm that all persons were created in the image of God, regardless of their country of origin or the language they speak. And everyone clapped in the room when I said these things. But here's the hypocrisy of our nation currently. Some rant and rave, and I told this to the interviewer, some rant and rave about illegal immigrants in this country, but don't complain about the lower prices of freshly picked produce, reduced construction costs, or having cheaper labor for gardening, housekeeping, hotel help, nursing home assistance, and a host of other tasks often performed by illegals at less than appropriate wages. That's hypocrisy. Others demand open borders, strenuously object to extreme vetting, and support availability of generous government services for all who enter, but they usually have locks on their own doors and security systems in their homes and cars, and they strongly object if someone enters their home or uses their possessions without first securing their prior permission. That's also hypocrisy. And if you want me to say this morning, as, or as I told the lady, if you want me to say to you, just open all the borders, anyone who wants to come in... Uh, for it's the Christian thing to do, you won't hear me say that. But if you want me to say, round up 11 million illegals and throw them out of the country for following the law is the Christian thing to do, you won't hear me say that either. I don't care about the right or the left, but I do care about results that work. And both the Bible and history provide helpful solutions. And then she went on to ask me some more, and I, I went through this. I said, look, her name was Michelle. I said, our immigration system is broken. Americans know it. Polling affirms it, and its problems are obvious. When you have something in your home that is broken, you either fix it or get it fixed, but you don't leave it broken for 30 years. Now, the, the last election, 2016, whether you're right or left or in the middle, uh, the, the election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, an amazing 70% of registered voters saw immigration issue as a very important issue for their vote. Very important. Not just important, very important, which for polling is very critical. I work for A.C. Nielsen. Those voters chose uh, Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton by a margin of two to one, 64 to 32%. The margin was even wider in so-called blue states that Donald Trump unexpectedly won, and it was the immigration issue. So what you have now is in Christendom with Russell Moore and others, the, these religious critics point to this one specific verse in Leviticus 19.34 as the basis of their opposition to the president's immigration policies. Um, but here's, here's the point. This is the verse again. The stranger that dwells with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It sounds like Russell Moore is very legitimate in his position. Uh, he's a national Southern Baptist leader. And he says that Baptists have a long record of welcoming the stranger in Leviticus 19.34. But there's a big problem with the use of this verse 
it does not say what he claims it to say. I'll explain. Let's go to the Hebrew. But before getting into the actual meaning, I do want to say this. Uh, one other point should be made about Leviticus 19.34 by the, crim, uh, the critics of immigration restriction. Here it is. The, the Bible, God establishes four realms of authority, each having its own distinct responsibility. So if you want to quote scripture and read it in the news, and you, you want to justify your position by scripture, then let's put it into context. Don't just proof text it, context. So when scriptures are read, whether you're using, you're using uh, Mark 12 or Luke 5, or you're losing, using Leviticus 19, remember this. There are four um, realms, separate realms of authority, each having its own distinctive responsibilities. One, the scripture speaks to the individual. Two, it'll speak to the family as it does in Ephesians. Three, it speaks to the church. And four, it'll speak to civil government. So whenever the Bible gives a command, it's important to identify which uh, which sphere the command is being given to. Okay? The majority of the New Testament texts that they proof text are all given to individuals. They're not applied to civil government. Are the commands of Jesus directed to the institution of government or are they given to the individual followers of Jesus? And you read the passage to look for the context. It's always very simple to find. These words are specifically spoken to his individual disciples, not the government in in most of the Beatitudes. Now let's get back to stranger among us, Leviticus 19.34, the verse that is so often misused by Christians today, including Russell Moore, the word stranger in Leviticus 19.34, in the Hebrew, very very clearly, correctly translated, a proselyte, that is, a convert. Okay? Thus, the stranger of Leviticus, Leviticus 19 is not just a foreigner who enters the land, but instead is a foreigner who enters with the intent of becoming a Jew. Someone who wants to fully follow their customs, laws, culture, morality, religious beliefs, practices, and language. When a foreign-born citizen finally becomes a Jew, he gets the same rights and privileges as a native-born Jew, which is the other part of Leviticus 19.34. In the Bible, there are actually three classifications for Israel's inhabitants. Did you know that? And there's also three classifications in America's immigration, which they got from the Bible. First, the native-born citizen, which would be in Hebrew, esrach, which means a Hebrew, a native-born citizen. Two, a foreign-born immigrant who wants to convert to become a Jew is called a stranger or uh, a stranger of righteousness. Gertzek is in the Hebrew. It's referred to in Leviticus 19.34. And the third category, the foreigner who comes into the land and lives by its laws but does not want to, co- to convert is called a stranger at the gate or a sojourner, Gertoshav in Hebrew. Now, in the Hebrew culture and also in America prior to the last 50 or 30 years, assimilation was always the objective in immigration, both biblically and in American immigration. So any stranger coming to America must be committed to becoming an American in beliefs, habits, and practices. I can live in Japan my entire life, become a citizen of Japan, but I will never be Japanese. In America, it doesn't matter if you've come from Japan, it doesn't matter if you've come from Germany, it doesn't matter if you, the minute you become a citizen, you now become an American. And they say, well, it's a salad. No, it's a melting pot. We don't stay separate. We are Americans. And the idea is we compact with this Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of America that we agree to follow these laws. That's what I swore to defend. If they're committed to Sharia courts rather than constitutional courts or to preserve their own separate financial systems or their own educational systems, language, customs, so forth, then they are not the stranger that God instructed to be welcomed into the land. This should be very easy for a Christian to understand if we want to live in heaven 
and be citizens in this new land. The Bible says we're citizens of heaven, right? We must fully embrace the standards, values, beliefs, practices that God has established for his kingdom. You can't come into heaven and go, you know what? I don't like anyone who is blonde and blue eyed. Let's kill them all. God says that didn't happen in heaven. Any notion that Leviticus 19 command to love the stranger translate into a mandate for open borders and unrestricted immigration is completely ridiculous. Now, I would like it that the pulpits in America could understand this and educate their people because we have to engage in the public square. For this reason, Sharia supremacists, ardent socialists, members of gangs or drug cartels, criminals and so forth are among those who are to be excluded, period. And I'll leave you with this. Democrats accuse Republicans and Republicans fault Democrats. Both are to blame. As documented by numerous independent sources, they have both incentives for for protecting illegal immigration, both of these groups. Democrats want to create a dependent underclass to see potential for easy votes, and Republicans are often tied to business interests to see cheap labor. But there's an abundant evidence that the blame is to be shared in a bipartisan way. As we've witnessed, nobody seems to want to take this issue up. And then we come to this very important word, desuetude, desuetude. The main facilitator of illegal immigration is a government that does nothing to change the broken system or enforce the existing laws. When laws are on the books but not enforced, the law is in desuetude. It is regarded as essentially ceasing to exist. And based on the 11 million number of immigrants, and that's high or low depending on what source you want to quote, the immigration system in America is the worst it has ever been. So how do we get out of this? There's a couple of thoughts. First one is build a wall. This is not racist or xenophobic. Walls should be built for the same reason Nehemiah built walls in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Bible does God condemn walls, guarding houses, fences, encircling property, or locks protecting doors. They're all for the purpose of security and protection. Those, and interestingly enough, those who stand in opposition to the Second Amendment are guarded by people with guns. Franklin Graham said this, why do you look, excuse me, why do you lock your doors at night? Not because you hate the people on the outside, but because you love the people on the inside so much. The government has every right to utilize a merit-based immigration program, prioritizing those who can contribute most to the nation. I'm not proposing amnesty, but a rather rigorous pathway to legalization. And then I'll leave you with this. Um, The church and the government have different functions, callings, and purposes. The role of the government is to protect its citizens and enforce the border. Read the Declaration of Independence, read the Constitution. That's the role of government. The role of the church, in simplest terms, is to get people to God through Jesus Christ. And we influence healthy government by our understanding of what the Scriptures say about it. Now, I say all this because in Isaiah 30, their borders, the walls of Jerusalem, are about to be penetrated, and they're about to be annihilated and wiped out. And they come up with all kinds of plans and gimmicks to try to stave off this imposing Assyrian force. Isaiah is given a word from the Lord that he reads to Hezekiah, the king of, of Jerusalem. He reads it to him. You've already had 10 tribes that have been taken into exile into Babylon. There's two left and they're being encircled by the Assyrians. And they don't have anything, any way out. And it's at this moment that God gives them an answer and gives them uh, an option and a way to be delivered. And what's fascinating is what God says to them, he's going to say to you this morning for any issue you're dealing with. And the application of this text applies to you as well, individually and corporately. It is a message of hope and it's profound in its application if you hear it. But you have to hear it. 
because it is so vital for us today as a body of believers and as a nation. And so with that, we will take a look at Isaiah 30. Open up, if you would, if you don't have a Bible, the folks walking down will hand you one. Just raise your hand. They'll get you a Bible. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. Here at Calvary Chapel, we honor the word of the, God, uh, of the Lord, we honor the word of God, and we tolerate the word of the teacher. And the way that we acknowledge that is we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. So would you stand with me, please? My words and $3 will get you a cup of coffee, but God's word does not return void. It's living and breathing and sharpening a two-edged sword. So we stand in its presence. Isaiah 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice. They attempt to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt instead of me. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors were at Haines, the place where they made underwear. (laughs) Sorry, I had to add that. They were all ashamed of people who could not benefit them, or be help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. The burden against the beasts of the south, through a land of trouble and anguish, from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper, the fiery flying serpent, they will carry their riches on the back of young donkeys, And their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit for the Egyptians shall help shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab Hem Shabeth, which means Rahab sits idle. Now go write it before them on a tablet. God says to Isaiah, who's to share it with Hezekiah. Go and write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for a time to come forever and ever. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to their seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach to your wall, ready to fall, a bulge in the high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and he shall break it like a breaking of a potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces, and he shall not spare. And there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth Or take water from the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. Listen. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. And you said, no. For we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the the threat of one. And at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain, as a banner on a hill. And then finally, verse 18, therefore the Lord will wait. That's what you want to do. I'll wait for you. That he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted, that he may have mercy on you. 
For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait on him. Lord, would you bless our time in your word and guide and direct our every understanding. I pray that you'd lead us into all truth and minister to your people and those at the hearing of my voice. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask you'd bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, please have a seat. Verse 18 says, therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. It's interesting to me because this is the passage that jumped out at me. This is the passage I think relates to all of us. Because it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, or what you're dealing with. The one thing we do know is all of us have problems in this life. Your checkbook may be running dry. You may have relational issues, health issues. We can fill in the blank. But the bottom line is, how are you going to deal with it? Are you going to do it on your own deal? Are you going to fix it yourself? Or are you going to wait on the Lord? You see, wait comes in two ways. The Lord's either waiting on you or you're waiting on the Lord. One is really helpful and the other is very painful. You're either going to wait on the Lord or he's going to wait on you. And what I mean by wait on you is the passage says in verse 18, therefore, that is everything prior to what we read in the first 17 verses as you were standing with that understanding of the first 17 verses. Therefore, I want you to know this. God says, I'm going to wait for you. What does it mean? He's going to wait for us. Well, the Jews had lost 10 of their tribes and they were taken into exile. The two remaining in the southern kingdom are being surrounded by the Assyrians, the baddest force on the face of the earth. They had wiped out every culture on the face of the earth and they were moving like a horde of locusts and wiping everyone out. It's almost like the ISIS just, just dominating all of the Middle East, moving into Europe. This, this horde is coming in. And it's destruction and death and, and demanding your adherence and submission. And they're paralyzed. And they look to themselves. They say, what do we do? Now, Isaiah had been given a word from God, read it to Hezekiah. He said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to run after the Egyptians for help. And, and the Assyrians are going to go through the Egyptians like a hot knife through butter. But you're going to say, no, the Egyptians are going to get it done because they have swift horses. And God says, I don't care if they have swift horses. The Assyrians have swifter horses. And ultimately, after you've done everything in your power, you're going to be stuck on top of a hill like a flagpole. And that's the last remaining portion of ground you're going to have, like in Masada. And really, it was Jerusalem. All they had left was Jerusalem. And they're surrounded by 185,000 Assyrians. And they, they had sold everything in their treasury to buy the assistance of the Egyptians. And they said, come help us. And the Egyptians are like, hey, cash day. And they take in all of the Jews' money. And the Assyrians look at the Egyptian army. And they're like, okay. And they just wipe out the Egyptians. And it was like, boom. And they're thinking, we're broke. I mean, we gave everything to Egyptians and they just, they, they melted. We're done. We, we, they had swift horses and, and they were Egyptians and they were well-trained. And we, it cost us money. And we, we've, we've tried to figure this out. We've tried to negotiate our way out of this. We've tried to do everything. And God said, I asked you to call on me, but you didn't want to. You wanted to go and finagle your own deal. Which brings us to ourselves. Any problem you face, the first thing you do is you pick up the phone and you call somebody who can help you. Yes? Yeah, amen. Honest man. Nobody else. <laughs> you call somebody who can help you. Uh, I'm really short this month. Do you think you can loan me some money? Do you know a really good doctor? Do you know a psychiatrist or psychologist that can help me? Do you, do you, do you, do you, do you, yeah, can you connect? Can you help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. My favorite 
Over 20 years in ministry. This is my favorite line. <laughs> Most irritating, too. Uh, discourages you as a pastor. And I'm still going to hear it. This is my favorite line. Pastor, <laughs> it's awful. We, we've tried everything. And nothing's working. And all I can do now is pray. <laughs> Seriously, I just, I want to grab you and shake you. Like, are you, are those words literally leaving your mouth? All I can do now is call on the God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand that keeps my heart beating and my lungs moving. All I can do now is, is call on the one who fearfully and wonderfully made me and knitted me together in my mother's womb, who holds the heavens together and causes it. That's all I can do. I want to record and go, listen, do you see how stupid you sound? And the only reason why I don't do it is because I don't like to listen to myself. You didn't get that. We all struggle. We have figured it out. All I need are swift horses. All I need is an economic upswing. I just need this. And wow, this will work. This will work. And God's saying, call on me. I'll show you great and mighty things you know not. Wait upon me. Calm and quiet your soul like a weaned child. Wait upon me. I can't wait on you. You wait on me. I got things to do. Really? What are you going to do? I'm going to get swift horses. Really fast ones. The Assyrians don't have with the Egyptians. These horses run, mister. God's like, do they? Yeah, they do. And they just watch before their eyes. Those weren't very swift. That just, that didn't last long. And they're right to the wall. Hezekiah is looking. There's no Egyptians left. They're all Assyrians. It's, it's a fascinating passage of scripture because it coincides with 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19, what we're reading in Isaiah 30 coincides with 2 Kings chapter 19. I'll read it to you. Verse 15, it says, then Hezekiah at this moment, I'll show you. It's, it's a fascinating picture. The Egyptians are wiped out. You, you can't have any more coffee. Sit down, Mark. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have some. I'll throw it to you. All right. At this point, Jerusalem is surrounded, and here comes, here comes the Assyrians. 185,000. They have nothing left. They don't have any money in the treasury. They're just wiped out. I mean, look at that. Paralyzed. That was taken. That picture was taken at the exact moment. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you are going, really? <laughs> you know what Abraham Lincoln said? You can't believe everything you hear on the internet. Right. <laughs> Where were we? So at this moment, at this moment, this is what happens. Verse 15, 2 Kings 19, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. All I can do now is... Yeah, yeah, let's do it again. All I can do now is pray. Grab the person next to you and shake them. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God of Israel. And you know how you get really old, you know, King James prayerfully. Thou great, almighty, thou Lord, thou. I don't know what thou means, but they, I'm just trying it. Are you listening, oh, mighty one? 
Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, Oh Lord, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. You're between these angels, God. You're on the mercy seat. You are God. Two great truths of the universe. There is a God and you are not him. He comes to this understanding. You are God. You alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God and you alone. Now, that being said, it's fascinating. He makes this prayer and he cries out to God. And in 2 Kings 18, he says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, it's the bottom there, King Sennacherib of Assyria marched against all the fortified towns of Judah and seized them. King Hezekiah sent this message to the king of Assyria after he prayed to the Lord, I have done wrong, withdraw from me, and I shall uh, bear whatever you impose on me. So the king of Assyria imposed upon King Hezekiah of Judah a payment, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. And by the way, I misspoke. This was before his prayer. So he's still trying to finagle. He says, okay, look, I've done wrong, king. Uh, listen, uh, Sennacherib, um, I, I have wronged you. And if you would withdraw, I will bear whatever you impose on me. And Sennacherib's like, all right, I'll tell you what I want. I want 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. I am about 299 talents short of that request. <laughs> Uh, and, 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 I, and, I, and I'm about, uh, I'm 30 talents short of the gold thing. What do you say? Will you take $2 and a, and a promissory note? Promissory note. And Sennacherib is like, no. No, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. I'm going to mop the floor with your people like I've done to everybody else. Now he's, he's done the swift horses and they wiped out the Egyptians. And now he comes here and he says, what can I give you? And he's got nothing left in the treasury. He gave to the Egyptians. The Egyptians were wiped out. He's broke. This is how God works. God's in the business of reducing you to a minimum that he might pour in his maximum. He wants to bring you to the end of your resources so that you recognize something. I couldn't fix this to begin with. I couldn't fix this to begin with. And at that moment, Hezekiah, all I can do now is pray. And then we just heard that prayer. He prays to God. He prays to God and he cries out to him. He says, Lord, help me. What do I do? Now, before I read what happens, I want you to know this. Here's his prayer. He just lays it out before God. Now, listen to this. This is the passage we began with. This is what will walk us through to the end. Verse 18 of Isaiah 30. Listen. After all this happens, folks, after all this happens, therefore, I'm going to wait for you. You good? Okay. I can tell it's you because you're bright red. Amen. This is, it's always fun every Sunday to have somebody do that. Therefore, after you've tried everything, your swift horses, promising some sort of remuneration, trying to get the Egyptians, after you've done everything... And it fails, which it will, and you are a pole up on a mountain with one little piece of property holding, and you're surrounded, 
At that moment, I said, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for you. The Lord says, I will wait. And I want to tell you why I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait so that I can be gracious to you. Wait, 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 what? I mean, you gave me word in advance. You told me what to do. I didn't do it. Now it's happened just like you said it would. And you're telling me you're going to be gracious to me? Yes. And I'll tell you why I'm going to be gracious to you. Because when you realize who I am and what I can do, you'll exalt me. I will be God, not all of your finagling. Not your will, my will. You're going to trust me. I will be exalted and you will realize that I'll have mercy on you. You're not going to get what you deserve. And I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to deliver you. I am a God of justice, but blessed are those who wait for him. You've got two options. You wait for me, God says, or I'll wait for you. Now, if I'm going to wait for you, we're going to have some problems. But if you wait for me, your faith is going to be unbelievable. You're going to walk into a memorial service and realize I know exactly what I'm doing. And you're going to walk away so blessed you never realized it. I'm going to put you in front of a room of Hispanic pastors and speakers and they're going to bless you like you've never imagined. I'm going to interview. I'm going to have you interviewed. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to establish these things. And I'll add in addition a number of other things in my own personal life. But before I do that, I want to show you this. Hezekiah prays. He lays this out to the Lord. And then this is the answer when Hezekiah has come to the end of himself. The Lord's been waiting for him to pray. And he finally prays. And in 2 Kings, it came to pass on a certain night that an angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away. He returned home and remained in Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of his false god that his two sons killed him. (laughs) Interesting. He prays and God sends an angel to wipe out 185,000 Assyrians. This is my favorite picture. Did you feel it? I felt it. Now, we come to this place where the Lord has said to us, I will wait on you. And he says, blessed are those who wait on me. So, we have two options this morning. You go ahead and get your swift horses, run up your credit card, call somebody, do everything but pray. You go ahead and reject the word of God. You reject his counsel. You don't seek what his word has to say. You take it at face value, whatever's put on the internet or on television. You build your own scenario. You come up with some sort of a political solution. You do everything in your power to come up with some sort of way to win this world. But what's fascinating to me is Benjamin Franklin, a founder of this country. Oh, he was a deist. Oh, just read some of his final writings and look at his tombstone and tell me he didn't have a relationship with the living God. And there at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, as they were laboring over what to give us as a compact of a nation that would end up being the greatest nation in the history of the world with more freedom than any other nation has ever experienced. When they were deadlocked and 13 states couldn't agree, 
And, and George Mason's leaving and Washington's running after him as the entire convention is dissolving. Because you had some states that had large populations and others that had small populations and they couldn't figure on equal representation. And Benjamin Franklin, the only signer of the three major documents of America, the Paris Peace Accord, the Declaration of Independence, and the U.S. Constitution, here he is, gouted feet in his 80s. He stands up. And he says in this early contest, when we were in the middle of the Revolutionary War, we called on heaven and God. And he always, always showed up. And have we forgotten so great a friend now? If a sparrow doesn't fall from the sky without God's full knowledge, how can we build a government that will sustain without his wisdom? He says, I propose that we adjourn for three days of fasting and prayer and reconvene that God would give us an answer to this deadlock. They broke away for three days, came back after prayer and fasting, and they came up with one of the most significant accomplishments in human history in American government, a bicameral legislature. A Senate with two representatives, every state, regardless of their size, got them. That's the upper house. And the lower house was based on population representation. Fascinating. That we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, that the sovereign would have access to the legislature and equal representation. It was unheard of in the history of the world that, uh, uh, that were created equal with representation in a constitutional republic, that we are bound by these laws in agreement that we would all come into this nation recognizing that I can't do anything to you without your consent because we're created equal in the image of God to protect these liberties. And you break the law to come in. It doesn't make you a citizen. You must adhere and agree to what we're about. You're welcome. I don't care who you are. You're welcome. But this is what we believe. And this is what we agree to. Period. And they prayed. Changed the course of human history. They waited on the Lord. And the Lord provided. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Oh, but here we are, right or left, Democrat, Republican, independent. We're, we're going we're, we're to come up with some sort of political solution. We are going to fix this immigration problem. Really? In your gatherings, can I ask you one question? Wherever your gathering is, can I ask you this one question? Do you pray before you begin? Have you asked God? He's not part of the equation. We don't need him. We just need swift horses. We need better solutions. Really? Really? That's fascinating. A government without God. I've seen history. Those governments are on the ash heap of history. This is a constitutional republic that can only be guided by moral people that is established with this understanding that man has this innate tendency to circular, concentrate power to himself. And we're trying to push power down to the people, but we want to put it in a federal aspect. Yeah, but government is, is, is instituted for the protection of these inalienable rights. Well, forget those. We'll give up our rights for the sake of security. Anyone who gives up their, their freedom for security deserves neither, Benjamin Franklin. But we'll come up with a solution. Fine, but are you praying? I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Are you praying? And after Benjamin Franklin's prayer, do you realize every Congress opens with prayer as a result of that? Now we've strayed. And we're wondering why the enemy's at the gate. And if it's not taught, then nothing is learned. 
But here's the thing. We don't need God. We don't need him. And you know what God says? Okay, I'll wait for you. Apparently it's not bad enough. The highest debt of any state in the nation just isn't bad enough. The number, highest number of abortions in the entire country in California just apparently isn't bad enough. Immigration out of control apparently isn't bad enough. A, 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 just a, a destruction of the First Amendment apparently isn't bad enough. Families falling apart apparently it's not bad enough. We will argue on our sides and figure out a solution apart from God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Ah, I got another way to fix my family. I got another way to fix my country. I got another way to fix my city. I, gotta, I don't need God. I don't want to read. I don't want to obey. I just want to do this. You're prideful. You're the God of your own life. And you know what? The Lord's going to wait on you because your God is going to be thrown in the ash heap of history. And he'll wait on you. And you're in good company, by the way. Jonah, the Lord says, go to Nineveh. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to Tarsus. I'm going as far from there as possible. I'm not going to Nineveh. Forget Nineveh. I don't care, God. I don't like those people. I'm not ministering to them. They're not like me. I'm going in opposite direction. God says, okay, I'll wait for you. And while he's waiting, storms. He realizes he's not just waiting, but he's orchestrating in a series of events to bring me to the end of myself. And these people are going to die. And he actually is a moral guy. And he says, look, you guys, you're going to do just fine. If I jump overboard, I'm the Jonah. You guys will be fine. He jumps over. Sure enough, the storms cease and those guys are safe. And the big fish comes up, swallows him. I don't believe in Jonah in the belly of the whale. Okay, whatever. Let's talk about a whale shark. I'll show you historical accounts of people who've survived in the belly of a whale shark for days. So just throw that out. But what's interesting to me is he's in the belly of a whale three days and three nights. I would have been in there three seconds going, I'm tired of my own way. I repent. Can I get out of this thing? If it was coming at me, I'm like, I'm done. Jonah is a tough son of a gun. He gets swallowed. There's no sunrise and sunset. He doesn't know three days. And he's going deep into the depths. And he's sliding to the front of the fish. Because it's not like it's, you know, it's smooth. And it's just like. And then it starts going back up. And it's, it's you know, 100% humidity, 98.6 degrees. I think that's what a whale shark is. Just miserable. He's just in there. Stomach acids, you know, eaten away. And just, it doesn't smell good. And he's just doing this for three days. And finally, he just says, you know what, God? I'm so sorry. I really am. And you know what God does? Causes indigestion. The whale shark, whale shark comes over and goes. (laughs) Jonah comes out. He's partially digested. Perfectly equipped to call repentance. Like, I repent. Like, I'm in. Where'd you come from? Three days in that thing. God is really good. You better listen to him. Right? So you can let the Lord wait on you while you're being digested. Or you can wait on the Lord and go where he tells you to go. To a memorial service and see me. That's not a big thing compared to what Jonah was asking. I share this with you because this one always hits me. 
You know this one, the prodigal son. Prodigal son says to his dad, look, give me my inheritance. I'm out of here. I don't want to live under your roof. I don't want to live with your God stuff. I'm gone. I'm leaving. And his father gives him his inheritance and he runs to a faraway land and he spends it on alcohol and cigarettes and, and alcohol, uh, alcohol, cigarettes, probably illicit drugs, prostitution. And he's got all kinds of friends because when you have money, you're the life of the party. And then he just, he gets broke. And then this is what's interesting is, is God's waiting on him just like the father's waiting on his son. Verse 14 says in Luke 15, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land. So God says, okay, I'll wait for you, but I'm going to expedite a little bit. Famine. (sighs) I'm hungry. I don't have any money. Prices went up. This is crazy. What's it going to take to bring you to the end of yourself? Your pride? You know, this prodigal picture to me is my daughter. You know the story. Some of you don't. We adopted her when she was 12. After the age of 18, around 19 or so, she decided, I don't want this thing anymore. I love you guys, but I don't, I'm not into this Christianity deal. I, I'm going to kind of go get some swift horses, and I'm going to go enlist the Egyptians, because your deal, this whole, I, I'm not going to do it. Well, how, where, where are you going to get the horses? Oh, that's really, I'm going to get them in Oxnard. Yeah, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna repair carpets. What do you, what do you, where are you gonna live? Well, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a room on Craigslist. How are you gonna get there? Well, the car that you, that car's a jalopy. It's not gonna make it, doctor. I won't make it up the hill. She packs it full of all of her junk. She just says, "I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it God's way." Okay. I remember she packs her car and starts to rain. She says, Dad, I just got to do this. And I said, I understand. You want to get in the belly and go deep. You want to do it your way. You want to get some swift horses. I'll wait for you. But you have to promise me one thing. She said, what, Dad? I said, if you find anything better than Jesus out there, you got to come tell me. She got in her car, she drove away. It started to rain, I remember. I was scared. Michelle was too. Came into the house, everybody was crying in the house. Natasha was gone. As I walk in, there's a friend of the family cooking some chicken and apple sausage, Adele's chicken and apple sausage. It's browned in the pan, it's all cut up, it's beautiful. I love food, it was a comfort. <laughs> Take a bite of it and I'm just eating it. And I was, oh, so good. And, and the guy says, it's good. And I go, yeah. And he goes, yeah, you don't want to know how it's made. And it took me back recently to, um, I went to a baseball game, a Dodger game with John Lindsay. And we had the privilege to be in one of those suites, all you can eat suites. And they had Dodger dogs. And I'm like, ah, Dodger dog, put that thing down. Big Dodger dog. I'm excited about eating it. And the guy there goes, you know, I used to work at Farmer John's. He goes, you know what the old saying was at Farmer John's? I'm like taking a bite of it. I go, oh, what is that? He goes, the only thing we didn't use of the pig was the squeal. <laughs> really? Mm. 
And it was fascinating to me is you don't want to know what's in it. What God was saying is, you know, I, I'd love this Dodger dog. I'd finished it, as you can tell. And I ate the sausage even after he said that because it was good. But the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, Rob, you love the finished product, but you don't want to know how it's going to be made. You just wait on me. I'll take care of it. Turned her off of social media. I didn't want to hear about anything. And I'll tell you what, there were sleepless nights and a lot of prayer. And while God was waiting on her and we were waiting on her, both Michelle and I were waiting on the Lord. And he would calm and quiet our soul and he would give us a peace that would surpass all understanding. And we had sleepless nights and we became a man and a woman of faith and we trusted God. And whenever the anxiety would come in, the Bible says, hold every thought captive to the mind of Christ. And we would both have this picture of her, you know, the, the coroner calling us and telling us to come pick up our, our daughter's body and, and where she was living and, and, and all these things. And we would only see glimpses and then fear would come in and God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. And we would pray over his word and we'd just give it to God and we would rest and he would give us sleep. And, and, and as we're waiting on God, God's waiting on her. And, and it tough cookie. She, she made Jonah look like a joke. And verse 17 of Luke 15 with the prodigal son, it, the, the scripture says, when he came to his right senses, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I will perish in hunger? He said, this is so stupid. I'm eating pigsty food. I can go back and be a servant in my father's house and I'd be better off than I am here. And as he starts to run or he starts to come home, He's thinking, dad's going to dump on me. Dad doesn't want anything to do with me. He's going he's gonna to beat me, but I still, I, I want to be home. And he'd been practicing what he was going to say to his dad. He said, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm ashamed of who I am. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. He's my boy and he's home. But what was interesting is the boy was coming and the dad was waiting for him. The dad was waiting for him. He could tell by his gait and, and the way he walked and, 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 and just the, the silhouette and the distance. And he said, that's my boy. And he lifted up his, his robe and he tied it and he just began to run. His legs were exposed. It was, it was shocking. And he's running. He doesn't care what anyone thinks. My boy's home. I've been waiting for him. I mean, when Natasha called us after a year and a half in hell in the belly of the whale, and she says, Daddy, I want to come home. I would have run to Oxnard, but I couldn't physically. <laughs> but I know that feeling. God doesn't want to dump on you. He's waiting on you to be gracious. He loves you. He loves you. And therefore, when you realize that and you give up all of running after swift horses and Egyptians and trying to do things your way and you come to submit to doing things his way, you'll exalt him and he'll have mercy on you. The Lord is a God of justice, but he blesses those who wait on him. And then I close with this. King David, this is the last of our illustrations. King David is a man that took matters into his own hands and as he oversaw this kingdom and he was trying to work it, he ends up having a lustful thought for, for Bathsheba and he ends up sleeping with her and gets her pregnant and he tries to pawn off the pregnancy on Bathsheba's husband. 
uh, Uriah the Hittite and he calls Uriah off the front lines and he tells him, you know, sleep with your wife so that, you know, nobody knows that I'm the one who got her pregnant and there's no secrets in a palace and, and Uriah knows what's going on and he sleeps out and so everyone knows he wasn't with his wife and he just, he, he's like saying, David, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of trying to pin this on me. You, you're the one who's, who's committed adultery with my wife. And he goes back to the front lines and, and David sends the hit out on him. And, 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 he, and, and he says to Joab, put, put Uriah on the front lines and then pull back the forces. And so David basically put a hit out on Uriah and they kill him. So he commits murder and adultery, two sins for which there was no sacrifice in all of Israel. You're not getting out of this. And I, I was watching the third series of The Godfather where Michael Corleone is in front of this priest and he's saying, there's no way there's redemption for me. He says, I've murdered people. He says, I've killed my own brother. I've cheated on my wife. And, and the priest prays with him. He understands the grace of God. And he's sobbing like a baby, wanting to make his life right at the end. A guy like that can be transformed. Any of us can. And David, when confronted by Nathan with everything he'd done after he'd played this whole gimmick, He confesses to David and he wrote this psalm. He said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I couldn't do this and there was no offering. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. I just want you to be honest with me, David. God says, I am. He says, I know. When I kept silent, God, my bones grew old and through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of the summer. Lord, I was dying. My, it was miserable. I was in the belly. I was being digested. I, I, I didn't want anything to do with you. And I, I, life was it just it was awful. And I'm finally at the end of it. And I don't want it anymore. Lord, I acknowledge my sin to you. I'm wrong. I don't want to hide it from you. I confess my transgressions to you, Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in the flood of the great waters, they shall not come near you. You are my hiding place and you shall preserve me from trouble and you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And those who wait on the Lord have that peace instead of the Lord waiting on you. And this is the one that David wrote later and I finish with this. David said in that time, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears And they looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And that one angel, everyone has a guardian angel. The scriptures declare it. Hebrews points it out. And if one angel can wipe out 185,000 Assyrians, I'll tell you what. You got an angel protecting you. And he encamps around those who fear God. You know what fear means? That you wait on God. God doesn't have to wait on you. You got two options. Wait on the Lord and your life is blessed and you have an angel that protects you. Or have God wait on you until you get partially digested and life is miserable. And then you come running back like the prodigal son or Jonah or Natasha partially digested and miserable or David where your bones have grown old. And you're not gonna face condemnation from God. He's gonna be gracious to you. And some of you are experiential. But God doesn't, God doesn't want to wait for you. He wants you to wait for him because he knows how much more beneficial and wonderful it is for you. Folks, you know how you wait for God? You spend time trusting him at his word. You spend time in prayer. 
if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways, then he will hear from heaven and heal their land. I don't want to hear about your political solutions unless you're on your knees praying. I'm not interested. We are a praying people. And this is what God's called us to. Don't think you're going to be able to manage your family apart from God. You're just an accident waiting to happen. God wants us to wait on him. He doesn't want us. He doesn't want to be waiting on us. It's far more beneficial for us to be waiting on him. 